And I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, John chapter 3 for our time of study in in God's Word today. Uh, We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of uh, the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study through this book, we come this morning to John chapter 3, and uh, we come to verse uh, 16, and... um, I think this verse deserves a whole sermon uh, on just this verse, and that's where we're going to be spending all of our time today. And the title of the message is, The Heart of God for the World. The Heart of God for the World. You know, we are told by the Apostle Paul that in the last days, difficult times will come, and we find ourselves in such days now for a whole variety of reasons, many of which we can't even begin to get into this morning. But a little over a month ago, there was an African-American man who shot 10 people on a subway train in New York City and left 19 others wounded in a racially motivated act of hate. As many of you know, last Friday, a white man went into a predominantly black neighborhood in Buffalo and shot and killed 10 people in a racially motivated act of hate. Last Sunday, as many of you know, a Chinese man unleashed fire on Taiwanese Christians at a Presbyterian church in Laguna Woods, not too far from here, in a politically motivated act of hatred against the Taiwanese people. And what do all of these criminals have in common? Part of what they have in common is that they have externalized the problem of evil and located it in the people of another ethnicity or nationality and then directed their hatred toward that group and sought to commit murder against them. As Al Mohler said this past week, On one of his podcasts, the greatest issue with all criminals like these is not simply the weapon that they carry in their hands, but the sinful hatred that they carry in their hearts. And that is something for which there is no cure but Jesus. Amen. If there ever was a day when our society needed to hear the words of John 3.16, it is today. Look at the text with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Imagine living in a world where everybody believed these words and lived lives that were shaped by these words. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible, and for good reason. Various writers have described John 3.16 as the most succinct and beautiful summation of the gospel found in all of the Bible, and I would agree. 
Martin Luther calls John 3.16 the miniature gospel. He also says that this verse flows like milk and honey, and its words are able to make the sad happy and the dead alive if only the heart believes them firmly. It is in this verse that God literally opens his bosom and allows us to see right into his heart, which is the birthplace of the gospel and all the galaxies of good that have sprung from it. Such a vision of the heart of God in this text should leave us forever changed and beautified so that we can shine as lights in the midst of this increasingly darkening world. This morning, I want us to spend all of our time looking only at this verse and looking at its truths and appreciating its beauty and perhaps be beautified ourselves as we do so. Now, to get the most out of John 3.16, we do well to realize that this verse is not uh, some announcement that is suspended in midair attached to nothing. This verse actually comes to us attached to something, and it serves as an explanation for what it is attached to. Look at the text and notice that John 3.16 begins with the word for. And this is a translation of the Greek word that can mean something like since or because. Clearly, Jesus is elaborating on something that has just been said. And what he has just said is found in verses 14 and 15. Over the last two weeks, we've seen how Jesus is in a conversation with Nicodemus, a man of great religious attainment, and he's told Nicodemus, that if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. He must start all over and be born again. And rather than look to his own religious attainments or his good deeds, Nicodemus must look to Jesus the same way that the sinful Israelites looked to the bronze serpent in the wilderness and lived Jesus says, look at verses 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Just as the Israelites were being bitten by serpents in the wilderness, every human being, including us has been bitten by the serpent of sin, and that includes Nicodemus. And just as the Israelites were dying from their snake bites in the wilderness, every one of us will die in our sins without some divine intervention. But Jesus tells Nicodemus that there is hope for sinners like us. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus is essentially saying, like the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up, I, the Son of Man, must be lifted up in death so that believers in me will have eternal life. 
Now, those of us that have been Christians for any length of time are not startled by what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, but if we were Nicodemus, we would be stunned. If we were hearing the Messiah say these words for the very first time, we would be full of questions. We would be asking questions like, why must anyone die so that people can be saved from perishing? Why must it be the Son of Man or the Messiah who dies? What would motivate God to make such a sacrifice for the salvation of any sinner in the world, the world over, who believes in him? It's one thing for God to tell Moses to fashion a bronze serpent on a pole to save Israelites from the death that they deserve. That's amazing enough. But to give his son, the Messiah, and have him die for sinners to have eternal life in him, what would possess God to do such a thing? These are the questions that we would be asking And Jesus' answer to these questions is found in John 3.16. And he answers these questions by pulling back the curtain and revealing the heart of God for all of us to see. And looking at what Jesus says in John 3.16, what we're going to see this morning is four revelations. Four revelations that explain the heart of God for the people of the world. And the first of these revelations is this, God loves the world, including us. God loves the world, including us. Jesus says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And by the way, I should make the point here that not every commentator is agreed that John 3.16 and what follows are actually the words of Jesus. Some commentators think that John 3 verses 16 through 21 are the words of the apostle John offering commentary on what Jesus has just said, and that's possible. But personally, I can't imagine Jesus' words to Nicodemus ending with verses 14 and 15 without Jesus going on to provide some kind of resolution to the questions that had to be racing through Nicodemus's mind. And for this reason, I like the approach of the commentator Ramsey Michaels, who says, and I quote, without a clear notice in the text that Jesus' speech is over, the reader should keep on listening as if Jesus is talking. And so let's do that this morning. As we look at this opening statement of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, it's actually easy for us as Christians to lose sight of how staggering of a statement this is that Jesus is making. In the first place, you should make note of the fact that this is the very first mention of the word love in the gospel of John. We're going to see the word love used many times more in this gospel, but this is its first occurrence here. And it's truly remarkable that in this very first mention of love in this gospel, 
the statement is made that God loves what? The world. And part of why this is remarkable is that this is the only statement of its kind in the entire New Testament. Nowhere else in the Gospel of John or anywhere else in the New Testament is God explicitly said to love the world in this exact kind of terminology that we find here. And this would have been most jarring to the Jewish mind of Jesus' day. The Jews had no trouble believing that Jesus loved them, that Jesus loved the Jews. They had no trouble believing that, but they just did not think in terms of God loving the world. Though there is enough in the Old Testament that could have led them to that truth. But sadly, as the commentator Leon Morris notes, in all of ancient Jewish literature, there's not a single reference found anywhere where a Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world. You don't find that anywhere in the volumes of ancient literature written by Jewish writers, which leads Morris to go on to say, it is a distinctively Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any national group. D.A. Carson, the commentator, says that here in this opening statement of John 3.16, we learn the remarkable truth that, and I quote, God's love is not restricted by race, unquote. In fact, let me give you a working definition of the world as it occurs in this passage, the world which God is said to love here. Uh, This word world speaks of people of fallen mankind internationally, of every ethnicity, background, language, social standing, economic status, religious background, upbringing, and personal history. And according to John 3.16, that's who God loves. God loves the people of the whole world. We've already learned in John 1.10 that Jesus came into the world and that the world came into being through him. And in John 1.29, we learn that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the, what? The world. And now here we learn the reason why this is true, because God the Father loves the people of the world, which includes the Jewish people and all the other peoples of the world. It's actually astonishing that God would be said here to love this world, a world that is postured in rebellion against him and will soon be crucifying his only begotten son in just a few short years from this moment in John chapter 3, yet we're told here in John 3.16 that God loves the world. In fact, Jesus says more in this verse. 
than just that God loves the world. He says, look at the text, God so loved the world. And you might want to underline that word so. And this leads us to the second revelation in this verse that explains the heart of God for the people of the world, including us. Number two, God gave. Being motivated by this love, God gave his only begotten son to die for the people of the world. God gave his only begotten son to die for the people of the world. In John 3.16, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's ponder that word so for a minute. Evidently, Jesus is telling us more than the fact that God loves the world. He's telling us the extent and the manner in which God has loved the world. And to capture what he's saying, it's good for us to think about what precedes this verse and what follows this statement in John 3.16. In fact, let me reread the text starting in verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that those who believe will in him have eternal life for God so loved the world. In other words, for God in this manner that I've just described, loved the world. So the word so points back to what Jesus has just said. It also points forward to what follows. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And tying what precedes and what follows together, Jesus is saying, you want to know the manner in which God has chosen to show his love for the world through the giving of his very own son to be lifted up to die for the salvation of sinners. This is how God has chosen to show his love for the world. This is how much he loves the world. By giving his son to be lifted up in death for the salvation of people all over the world. It's a staggering thing that God would give anything to the world at this point in human history, right? In the Old Testament, God gave to Adam and Eve a perfect garden uh, for which they were ungrateful and inside of which they rebelled against God and disobeyed him. God gave the children of Israel a leader named Moses, whom they complained against and disobeyed and just about drove crazy. God gave them the law, which they violated and disregarded. He gave them a land of promise to dwell in, which they polluted with their sinful rebellion against the living God. He gave them the prophets whom they persecuted and killed. He gave to all people throughout the world his creation to show them his power and his attributes. And mankind responds to this gift of creation by ignoring what it is saying and repressing its truth. 
That God would give to the world any gift after all of this is amazing. That he would give his son is even more amazing. That he would give his son to be lifted up to die is off the charts amazing. But that's what this verse is teaching us. And notice that it's not just any son that God is said to have given here. The text here says that he gave his only begotten son. And this expression, only begotten, speaks of Jesus' one-of-a-kind uniqueness. God did not have a thousand sons and gave one of them over to die for the salvation of man. He gave his one-of-a-kind son to be lifted up in death for the world. We learn back in John chapter 1, verse 12, that there is a special sense in which all believers in Jesus are children of God or sons of God, yet Jesus is the unique son of God, the one who is utterly unique in his relationship with the Father. Of his type, there is no other. He is the only son of his kind, the only son who is God the Son the only son who was with God from the beginning, and this is the one God gave to be lifted up in death for the salvation of the people of the world. That's love. That's amazing love. And here in John 3.16, Jesus is pointing to himself and essentially saying, I am that gift. I am God's sacrificial love gift to the world. But there is more. God had a purpose in giving his son in death, to be lifted up in death, a purpose that further reveals his love. And this brings us to the third revelation in this verse that explains the heart of God for the people of the world. Let's word it this way. God gave his son so that all who believe in his son would not perish. God gave his son so that all who believe in his son would not perish. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not, what? Perish. Notice the purpose of God in giving his son to die upon a cross so that those who believe will not perish. So we learn here that there is evidently a perishing that the people of the world are headed for if God does not act on mankind's behalf. If God did not give his son to be lifted up in death, then everyone in the world would have perished in their sins. And the perishing that is being spoken of here is eternal damnation in the lake of fire that is spoken about in Scripture, namely in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and verse 8, where the Bible says, for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's the perishing that we all deserve 
because of our sins against God. That's the perishing that all of us would be headed towards if it were not for Jesus Christ. And God, this verse says, gave his only begotten son to be lifted up in death upon a cross so that those who believe in him will in him have or be rescued from this perishing. I should say that almost everyone seems to love John 3.16 because it's such a positive verse. Yet in this verse, we have mention of perishing, which means that apparently talk of the love of God and man's perishing are not mutually exclusive. We don't love people by not mentioning anything about the perishing of those who do not believe in Christ. In fact, we most appreciate the love of God when we realize that he rescued us from a real perishing that we were headed for, right? If we remove hell from our vocabulary, if we remove from our minds any notion of sinners eternally perishing in their sins, then our understanding and appreciation of the love of God is forever rendered shallow. But here in John 3.16, we learn that there is a real perishing that people are headed for, and we learn that God so loved the world that he sent his son to rescue the people of this world from this perishing. That's love. That's amazing love. And our hearts as Christians ought to be overflowing with thankfulness to God for his infinite mercy in giving his son over in death to rescue us from this perishing. In fact, notice the particular people whom God intended to keep from perishing. In fact, let me just read this to you literally. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order that all the believing in him ones would not perish. He gave his only begotten son in order that all the believing in him ones will not perish. So it was this category of people and only this category of people whom God purposed to rescue from perishing, the believing in him ones, meaning those who believe in Christ and God purposed to rescue every single one of them from perishing. Implied in what's being said here, guys, is that even believers in Jesus would have perished if Jesus did not die. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus did not die, then even his disciples would have perished in their sins, including Peter, James, and John, who is writing this gospel. And all those who believe in Jesus would perish eternally. If Jesus just came into this world and taught good things and did many miracles but did not die, then hell 
would be populated not merely with unbelievers, but even with believers in Jesus if Jesus did not die. There would be people who put their full confidence and trust in Jesus who would be in hell for all of eternity if the Father did not go all the way and give his Son over to be lifted up in death for the salvation of those who believed in Jesus. But God determined that he would not let believers in Jesus down. He determined that he would not leave them without rescue. He would not allow their faith in Christ to prove vain. This is the resolve of God for all those who believe in Jesus. In 1 Peter 2.6, you might want to write that reference down. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.6 that he who believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. This is true because the Father will do everything needed, even if it means the death of his Son, to rescue absolutely every believer in Jesus from perishing. And not one of these believers in Christ will slip through the cracks and perish. God loved the world. He loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten Son to die upon a cross. He calls all people the world over to believe in his son, and he gave his son to die so that all those who do believe in his son will be rescued from perishing. And when Jesus was on the cross, he took the perishing that we deserved upon himself so that we who believe in him will not have to perish. That's how much God loves the people of the world, including us. That's how much God loves people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And God's love doesn't even stop there. God doesn't just manifest his love by purposing to save believers in Jesus from this thing called perishing. There's a fourth revelation in John 3.16 that explains the heart of God for the people of the world, including us. Number four, God gave his son so that all who believe in his son would have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have something. And that is eternal life. Evidently, God was not content to rescue believers in Jesus from perishing. He wanted to give them something. And what he wanted to give them as a gift is this thing called eternal life, which is the greatest gift of all. He saves believers in Jesus from the worst fate imaginable, which is perishing, and gives them the best gift imaginable, which is eternal life. But then we ask, what is eternal life? Well, at the very least, we know that eternal life is life that is infinite in its length, right? But it has to be more than that, right? Imagine living forever alone, That's no life. Imagine living forever stuck in line at the DMV. That's eternal life, but 
that's no life. Imagine living forever with the pain of some disease that is ravaging your body. That's no life. Imagine living forever in bondage to some shameful sin. That's life that goes on forever, but that's no life. I mean, even the damned in hell will live forever, separated from God. So the eternal life that Jesus is speaking about in John 3.16 must mean something more than merely living forever, right? Well, thankfully, we learn later in John's gospel the essence of eternal life And that is in John 17, 3, where we learn that eternal life entails living forever in relationship with God and all of the good that goes along with that. In John 17, 3, Jesus is praying to the Father and he says, this is eternal life. And we listen up because, hey, this is what believers in Jesus get from a loving God This is eternal life. And then listen to what he says, that they may know you, that they may gnosko you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That word translated know, being gnosko, is a relational term, and it speaks here of relationally knowing God the Father and God, the Son, which means that eternal life is living forever in an intimate relationship with the living God, loving him and being loved by him in this life and then in the life to come, loving him and being loved by him in unhindered fullness with absolutely nothing to mitigate the flow of love from us to him and from him back to us. And this kind of eternal life, according to John 3.16, is available to everyone who believes in Jesus. And that's the only stipulation. The text, look at, look at the text again. The text here does not say God gave his only begotten son in order that those who keep the law and never mess up will have eternal life. No, the way to eternal life is simply through believing in God's son, Jesus Christ. It's that simple. Even messed up people whose lives bear the scars of sin can believe in Jesus and be rescued from perishing and receive the gift of eternal life. That's what I did years ago. I'm no better than anyone else. I'm probably worse, but I have believed in Jesus. That's what many of us in this room have done. We're no better than anyone else, but we have brought our broken selves to Jesus, and we have believed in him. Most of us in this room are just messed up people who have been bitten by the serpent of sin, which is what has messed us up, who have come to Jesus and been enabled by God to believe in him and receive the gift of eternal life through him. Isn't that amazing? We're not saved by being better than 
anybody else or by our own works, but simply by believing in Jesus and the works he did on our behalf. Now let's think for a moment, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Um, And I love the way Carl Laney, the commentator, explains it. He says, and I quote, belief in Christ is trusting your eternal destiny to the work of Christ and realizing that you have no other backup plan should that redemptive work fail. In other words, it means to go all in on Jesus, to not depend upon your good works, your sacrifices, your sincerity, but only in Jesus with no backup plans. You're not saved by adding Jesus to the list of things that you believe in but by going all in on him and by getting rid of your backup plans. In fact, to illustrate this point, Carl Laney goes on to share about a Buddhist woman he knew who had turned to Christ after spending a lot of time investigating the claims of Christianity. And he says, and I quote, her profession of faith in Jesus was a significant milestone in her life marking her as a regenerate person. But she demonstrated her faith, showing her trust in Christ alone when she allowed her pastor to remove the Buddha and the incense from her home. That's faith. That's going all in on Jesus. And those who believe in Jesus will be rescued from perishing and have eternal life. Now let's think for a moment about why it is that belief in Jesus is so essential for us to have eternal life. Why did God make that the condition, if it's a condition at all? Think with me for a moment on this. For the the Father to give Jesus to be the one who accomplishes our salvation implies the fact that the Father believed in Jesus in the sense that he trusted Jesus, his Son, with the ultimate task, sending him into the world to be our Savior. In choosing Jesus in this way, the Father is revealing that he would trust no one else with this task because no one else is worthy of this task of accomplishing our salvation. And in Hebrews 3, 2, in Hebrews 3, 2, it says that Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. In other words, Jesus proved himself worthy of the Father's trust He executed his mission perfectly. He did not let his father down, which shows the wisdom of the father in trusting only Jesus with this task of accomplishing our salvation. The father did not trust Buddha with this task, nor did he trust Muhammad with this task, nor did he trust Dr. Phil or Oprah Winfrey with this task, or Elon Musk with this task, or Donald Trump 
with this task or President Biden with this task. He didn't trust Nicodemus with this task. And he didn't even trust you with the task of accomplishing your own salvation. He trusted only Jesus with this task. And when you believe in Jesus, you are in that moment of belief, bringing yourself into alignment with God's estimation of his own son as the only one worthy of trust when it comes to your own salvation. Does that make sense? And only by joining the Father in this high estimation of the trustworthiness of his Son can you be saved. What I just said seems second nature to most of us who know Christ, but it's an impossibly hard pill to swallow for those who are working so hard to earn their way into heaven and who think that they just might be nailing it like Nicodemus probably felt before he encountered Jesus in this conversation. We need to let it sink in that the fact that the Father chose Jesus to be your Savior means that he rejected you as your own Savior. And he rejected anything you've ever done to contribute anything to your own salvation. I mean, imagine a lineup of the greatest people in human history whom God inspects one by one to see if any of them are worthy of entrusting with the task of accomplishing your salvation. And imagine that you are in that lineup too, and God walks by and inspects everyone in that lineup and passes every one of those people by, including you, and then points to Jesus and said, he's the only one I will trust with the task of accomplishing the salvation of those who believe in him. The question this morning is, will you agree with God the Father on this and put your trust in Christ alone? It kind of hurts our feelings a little bit that God would reject us as our own savior and choose Jesus instead, but we have to get over that and agree with God and say, I totally understand why you rejected me as my own Savior and chose Jesus alone to be my Savior. Will you agree with God on this and put your trust in Christ alone? Or will you disagree with God and choose to trust yourself instead? I pray that you will agree with God and trust in Christ. And I hope that this revelation of the heart of God in John 3.16 will inspire you to do that. If God is speaking to your heart this morning and, and you feel him drawing you to himself, I would urge you to look to Christ and, and believe in him. He's a good savior. Admit in all humility your bankruptcy and see that Christ is all that you need. Call upon his name and be saved from the perishing that you deserve for your sins. And if you do that, God will be pleased to forgive you of your sins 
He will rescue you from the perishing that you deserve for your sins and give you this amazing gift of eternal life. And if you're saved, I urge you to make it your habit to walk in the good of God's love for you in Christ. Enjoy living in relationship with him. You're not waiting for heaven to get eternal life. You have that now so you can be knowing God and relating to him and experiencing all the good that goes along with that. Preach the gospel to yourself each day. Relish the heart of God as it's revealed in this text. And let it cause you to love him more. And even rest more securely in the Father's love. I mean, one of the things I love about John 3.16 is how Jesus points to the Father as the initiator of our salvation. Some people tend to view God the Father as the stern and the, the angry one who had to be pacified and persuaded by Jesus to forgive us as if Jesus is the initiator of our salvation who thankfully changed the Father's mind and persuaded him to show grace to us. But in John 3.16, we have Jesus himself teaching us that it is the Father who loved the world so much that the Father gave his Son to be lifted up in death to rescue believing ones from perishing and to give them the gift of eternal life. God The Father was the initiator of our salvation. It all flowed from his heart. As Leon Morris says, John 3.16 teaches us that, and I quote, the atonement of the cross proceeds from the loving heart of God. It was not something that was coaxed out of him by Jesus. So on your good days and On your bad days as a believer, keep your eyes fixed on your heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, and rest confidently in the loving heart of your heavenly Father for you. On another front, there's a lot in this verse to encourage and I think guide you parents as you raise your children I would encourage you parents to teach your children the view of God that is presented in this verse, a God who loves the people of the whole world, so much so that he gave his son for the salvation of people of the world, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. Raise your children to love internationally as God loves And then be willing to give your sons and daughters to the very cause of the gospel that is presented so beautifully in John 3.16. Even if that means releasing your children to serve in some foreign land someday. How can we withhold our children from such a cause when we ourselves are the beneficiaries of a salvation that has come to us because we have a heavenly father who is willing to give his son for our salvation. Most of you know something about Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China in the latter part of the 1800s. Hudson 
grew up in a Christian home hearing his parents pray often for the salvation of the people of China. And in time, the Lord called Hudson at a young age to give his life to bringing the gospel to the people of China. And then one day, his parents had the heart-rending task of surrendering and giving up their son to the mission of bringing the gospel to the people of China. In his biography, Hudson Taylor shares about the first time that he departed for China in 1853 on a trip that just the trip alone would take six months. After years of praying and preparing, the moment had finally arrived and Hudson Taylor went to Liverpool to board the ship and listen to him as he describes what transpired between him and his mom as he departed. He says, My beloved, now sainted mother had come over to Liverpool to see me off. Never shall I forget that day, nor how she went with me into the cabin that was to be my home for nearly six long months. With a mother's loving hand, she smoothed the little bed she sat by my side and joined in the last hymn that we should sing together before parting. We knelt down and prayed the last mother's prayer that I was to hear before leaving for China. Then notice was given that we must separate and we had to say goodbye, never expecting to meet on earth again. For my sake, my mother restrained her feelings as much as possible we parted, and she went ashore, giving me her blessing. I stood alone on the deck, and she followed the ship as we moved toward the dock gates. As we passed through the gates, and the separation really commenced, never shall I forget the cry of anguish wrung from that mother's heart. It went through me like a knife. I never knew so fully until then what God so loved the world meant. And I am quite sure my precious mother learned more of the love of God for the perishing in that one hour than in all her life before. Notice that Hudson Taylor says, I never knew so fully until then, it was his going forth and separating from his mother that took him deeper into an understanding of John 3.16. And he was sure that his mother learned more about John 3.16 in that one hour than in all her life before. As they both reenacted John 3.16, on their own level, living out its ethic. Here's my point, parents. Believe John 3.16. Live the ethic that is presented here. Teach John 3.16 to your children. Show them the heart of God in this verse. And live it out. It may end up breaking your heart. 
and reducing you to tears of anguish as you release your children to what may be a difficult calling, but it just might end up being your and your children's pathway to a deeper understanding of the heart of God as it's presented here in John 3.16. There's simply no denying that we see in this passage a cosmopolitan God whose heart swells with an expansive, surprising love for the whole world, which includes people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And we ought to love the people of this world as God does. We ought to give heed to Christ's commission to go into all the world and make disciples of whom? Of all the nations, which means that we must not only think of the people in our own nation, in our own neighborhoods, that we must not just think of people who look like us and speak like us, but think about the people of all the nations. It's passages like John 3.16 that prepare us to learn later in the book of Revelation that at the cross, Jesus purchased for God people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And that one day, people of every tribe and tongue and nation will be gathered around the throne of God singing as redeemed ones the praises of the Lamb. And if we are going to be like God, we must love the lost too. Even those who are presently hateful and angry and not very lovable, we should be humbled by the fact that we once were unlovely ourselves, and even since being believers, let's admit it, we can often be unlovely as believers. Can I get an amen? We should be humbled by just the awareness of our unloveliness and how we deserve the wrath of God, yet God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die so that we would be rescued from perishing and have the gift of eternal life. We should be motivated by the love of God to be like him and to love others like he does and seek to do good to all, not simply to those who look like us and talk like us and whose national boundaries are the same as ours or whose skin color is the same as ours, but we should manifest the loving, expansive heart of God toward all seeking to be the hands and the feet and the heart of Christ to them and seeking to bring them to Christ. In many ways, nowadays, we have the world coming to us, right? As refugees from foreign lands. Some of these individuals are coming into our country legally and some are coming illegally. Some are coming because of wise decisions that our government leaders have made, and some are coming because of foolish and reckless decisions made by our leaders or by other world leaders. And while we should have strong opinions about the right ways that these inflows of people should be regulated and how they should happen, we should not 
fail to see those who are coming into our country through whatever means as a part of the world that God loves. And we should want them to hear about Christ and how they can be saved through him. In Philemon, we learned that the Apostle Paul had a runaway slave who crossed his path illegally. And what did Paul do? He shared Christ with him and led him to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Why? Because Paul viewed that man, Onesimus, as a part of the world that God loves. And we should do the same with regard to all. We have a few people in our church who are ministering right now the love of Christ to refugees who are right now in our country from Afghanistan. Through the Agape Fund, we've been able to contribute to a church in Hungary and a church in Ukraine and also to the Children's Hunger Fund as they seek to meet the needs of refugees of the war in Ukraine and to give them help and aid in Jesus' name. And so many of you um, do so much for so many in such situations uh, and in many others, people close to you and far away from you. I would imagine that these days in which we live will likely be providing all of us with many opportunities to be like God and manifesting his love for the people of the world. And we should be open to ways that we can manifest his heart for all the peoples of the world and to seek to bring Christ to them. And then when God saves them, we should embrace them as blood brothers and sisters in Christ who are united to us through the blood of Jesus, and that's the deepest bond, amen? And thereby, in living this way, show the world that there is something stronger than selfishness, that there is something stronger than hate, something stronger than racism, something stronger than the personal real histories that would otherwise divide us. And that is, that strong thing is the love of God. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do just this. Lord God, you have done us such a great service in pulling back the curtains and revealing your good heart, your expansive heart to us in this text. May what we see in this text serve to transform and beautify us, Lord. And may we mirror the beauty that we see in this text in the way that we go about loving one another and loving all and doing our part 
as members of the local church in furthering the cause of the gospel, not just in Riverside, but throughout this state and country and throughout the world. May the world see the, the heartbeat that is here in this verse. May, may they feel that heartbeat in us. May the love that drives you, Father God, to do what you have done drive us. And may the grace that you have shown us in Christ, an undeserved favor, be the motivation for us to live our lives with this orientation by which you operated as it's revealed here in this text. And I pray, God, if there's any in this room who have never agreed with you yet that Jesus is the only one who could be trusted with something so serious and grave as their salvation that they would look away from themselves and from anything and anyone else and say, I'm going to agree with God and I'm going to look to Jesus and I'm going to believe in him as my Lord and Savior and I'm, I'm just going to trust in him alone and get rid of any backup plan. I'm going all in on Jesus. Touch hearts, Lord, that they would look to you and believe in this way today. You're a good God who delights to do such things. And so we ask, knowing that salvation from beginning to end is something that only you can accomplish. Thank you for being with us this morning and for hearing this prayer. And we ask all these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,